0: Mark chapter 2 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 13 through 17. Today, people know each other less and less. Harvard professor Robert Putnam, in a very insightful book, Bowling Alone, demonstrates that since the 1960s, an American's involvement in social groups and churches has dropped nearly 50 percent. And the title of the book, uh, bowling alone, comes from the idea of bowling leagues becoming obsolete. And this has happened because less and less people want to be in community. Bowling with a league means you're in community, and people now want to bowl alone. We saw this happen a little over 10 years ago when we Bowling came out. Everybody wanted to stay at home, and I'm, I'm fine with where, where I am. I don't want to be in community. I don't want to be known. And we've even seen it uh, throughout Uh, the last 10 years, how it's increased to go more and more where people want to be isolated. Think about it this way. Uh, 50, 60 years ago, the focal point of your out, outside, your outdoor living space, was the front yard. I remember even living out in the outskirts of Greenville. In my first house I bought, Jess and I would often sit out on the front porch, and we would talk to people, and people would talk to us from across the, the neighbor's yards. And what happens when we moved into the big city of Greenville, uh, everyone wants to live in their backyard. Outdoor living spaces are all focused on the backyard and not the front yard. Even see with East Carolina University, the student center, the way that Cafeterias and student centers are now set up, Uh, they're set up more where students can then just graze through a line and get their food and not have to sit at a table in front of actual people. Uh, The the research even showed in this book, Bowling Alone, it shows that a number of people playing cards together is down 25%. The number of bars, nightclubs, taverns where people used to congregate is down 40%. Uh, Full-service restaurants where people walk in and sit down for a meal are down 25%. However, the number of fast food restaurants are up 100% because everybody wants to go to cookout and go through a line and get food and then eat by ourselves in our cars. And that's what we typically do. Uh, You even see with social, uh, having a social evening with a neighbor is down 33%. Having friends over at your home is, is down 45%. And I would even argue that we've created a world where we primarily connect through technology. Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. I mean, how did I even tell you to stay in tune with building updates? I didn't say, hey, ask a friend. I said, make sure you're following us on social media. Because that is how we communicate. And what what happens is, even in this, these avenues can be used for good, like church updates. However, they can be safe and controlled ways for us to hide and never be known. Because social media is a platform where we do what? We put out our best selves. We show a picture of our best food. We show our kids when they're well behaved. We show our spouses when we're getting along. But we don't want you to see all the mess that's behind it because we would think it's too much. So we have to wonder, why is it that we hide? Why is it that we want to live in isolation? Why don't we want to be known by others? Well, the good news is we have the gospel. In the gospel, it brings light to darkness, everywhere throughout the gospel, we see Jesus, wherever he goes, he exposes people for who they really are. Uh, You see it in John's gospel, that he comes and he brings light into the darkness, and the darkness did not, the scriptures say, the darkness did not understand him. And we even see the same thing happen in, in Mark's gospel. The beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus is calling people to follow him, and we even see at the very end of chapter one, or rather the beginning of chapter two, that jesus is able to perceive the thoughts in the hearts of those around him he can literally read their minds and so there's no one who's in the presence of christ that isn't exposed but what i want to show you this morning is that that is actually a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing to be exposed in the presence of christ and that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. We'll start in Mark chapter two. We'll read the beginning in verse thirteen. Y'all good? Everybody good? They were quiet this morning. All right. Mark two, verse thirteen. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "What? Follow." Me, and he rose and followed him. Now we see this phrase that Jesus uses. He says, "Follow me." It's a familiar expression. It's a familiar call of Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter one where Peter calls, uh, Jesus calls Peter, James, John, and Andrew to Himself, and they follow Him immediately. The text says that they left their nets and they followed Him. But here in the text, Jesus is calling a tax collector. It's going to be a different type of disciple. If, if you remember rightly, um, fishermen, Peter, James, John, Andrew, were poor men. Jesus is calling these poor men to himself. And now we see in Mark chapter 2, he's calling a tax collector. And we'll get into this a little bit in a moment. But the tax collector was a wealthy man. And so now he's merging the two worlds of rich and rich and poor and both communities, poor men and rich men, have the same response to Jesus' call. He says, follow him, and there's the same determination, they immediately follow him. And so there's this similar response that we see, but it shows us that there's not a type of person that Jesus calls to himself. That the gospel isn't a message that is exclusive to a certain class of people. In other words, the gospel is for people of all social classes, of all races, of all backgrounds. Now I want you to think about what this would have meant for the other four disciples. What this would have meant for Peter to call this man Levi, who we know as throughout the New Testament, Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. This this man was a tax collector. What what does this mean for Jesus to call this wealthy man to himself, knowing that he's already called these four fishermen to himself who are poor? Well, it means their response to Jesus would have been very different. It it would have been, okay, we can resonate with Jesus because Jesus is a carpenter, and we're fishermen, we're poor, but why is Jesus now adding this rich man to to our midst? And now we're sort of forced to be followers of Jesus together. Now, this didn't happen in those days. Poor fishermen and rich tax collectors, this didn't happen. But this is what the gospel can do. The gospel can foster a community that really shouldn't make sense. Rich and poor people can come together and be family. Young and old can come together and be family. I love being the pastor here for Integrity Church because I can go out in the community. I can see people young and old, different walks of life, at a Panera Bread, and they're sharing life together and they're reading scripture together. I can go to Scullery and see people sharing life together and reading scripture together, and what I often see is like, oh, how do they know each other? That doesn't make sense. Like, how did they get connected in the first place? They, I, they, don't, they don't seem like they have anything in common. But the gospel can do that with people. The gospel can bring people together. One of the most profound ways I, I saw that happen is in the life of our church about five years ago. We had an older gentleman by the name of John Bradley. He was in his 60s. John um, was a retired ECU professor. He also had a a theological background. He had some theological trainings. He served different churches. And and John was retired and had Parkinson's disease. And so he came up to me right after he joined our church and said, what am I supposed to do here? Like, we've got all of these young people. Uh, What am I supposed to do? Because I can't be on the setup team, Right? And so he began to say, what am I supposed to do? I said, John, you have all, these, you have all this experience in life. You have a theological uh, education. You, you've led small groups before. You've led Bible studies. You've preached before. Why don't you just rally some of these young guys together and start meeting with them and, and walking through God's word with them? And he said, okay. So he says, I, I, hey, he comes in my office one week. He says, hey, I've got somebody. I'm going to meet with them. And it's like he's like telling me about his first date, right? He's super excited. And then the next time he comes in, he goes, man, I met with such and such. He's got a lot of issues. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I wanted you to meet with him, right? I don't want to meet with him. <laughs> and so they start meeting together. And then weeks on, he's like, hey, I added such and such to our Bible study, and we're starting to meet. And by the way, we're, meeting, we're now meeting with a group of guys at our house at, for breakfast. I make them breakfast every single week, and we start sharing. I start opening up. And then later on, he's got a rally of young men and a couple of guys closer to his age, all together in his home, every single week for breakfast. They're sharing their life together. They're going through God's word together. And I will never forget, John's health began to decline. The Parkinson's disease became, be, began to really own him. And he, too weak to, he, he became too weak to even lead the Bible studies. And so he would get these other young men to lead, and he was teaching them how to lead a Bible study. And so they began to lead, and they began to alternate. Different people would draw from different hats, and you're going to lead this week, and you're going to lead, and he would teach them. And he began to leave literally a legacy behind to where the Parkinson's disease, when it eventually took his life, these young men were able to have something that actually continued to go forward, and it led to them continuing a Bible study that actually still happens today. And some of those young men in that group are some of our best leaders in our church now. And that happened five years ago, and when John passed away, all of those young men in his Bible study were pallbearers at his funeral. And I'll never forget that when Kirk Birch, uh, one of our elders, who's around the same age of John as John, got up and did the one—he was one of the funeral speakers. He got up and began to share about this Bible study. And about how these, all these young men are coming to his house, and all these young men are now a part of this uh, community together, and Kirk's now in the group, and there's other, other older men in the group, and these, all these men with these young men and older men mixing together, sharing life together. And he began to share that story. And I remember thinking, to a believer, this makes perfect sense. That's what we should be doing. But for the non-believers in this crowd, I bet this sounds really freaking weird. Why is it that he would have all of these people in his home, a retired man, he has no relational connection to them other than Jesus Christ? Well, that's the answer. The gospel brings people together in a way that it doesn't make sense. Imagine the disciples here. The disciples that Jesus had gathered so far, the fishermen, were these poor, marginalized men, and now Jesus is saying, I'm going to add someone else to the mix. I'm going to add Levi, Matthew, to the mix, and he is a tax collector who's wealthy, he's upper class, he's hated on by his fellow Jews. And so Jesus is kind of like saying to the disciples, it's, it's going to get a little strange. It's going to get a little weird, but you're going to have to trust me. You'll see it in verse 15. He says, And he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Matthew becomes a follower of Jesus. He's this tax collector who follows Jesus, and he immediately throws a party at his house, and he invites Jesus. He invites Jesus to hang around with his fellow tax collector friends, and it creates an uproar. Now, what happens here, it's it's an interesting scene because it says that everyone is there, and it says that they're reclining at the table. Now, this is strange because we typically, when we eat, we don't typically recline at a table, But that is how people ate in the ancient world. Now, I hate to burst your bubble, but if you have the famous Leonardo da Vinci poster up or picture up of the Lord's Supper, it probably didn't happen that way. Where it doesn't look like a board of directors eating together and facing this hallway, right? That was probably da Vinci's experience in the 1400s when he ate. But in the ancient world, that is not how they ate at all. Now, a a dining table would have been sort of more like a coffee table. It would have been low to the ground, would have been longer, would have been more narrow. They would be laying on cushions, kind of laying next to each other and facing each other. Now, single guys, don't get any ideas, all right? Don't say, baby, we're going to have a meal together, and this is how they ate in the Bible. I want to be biblical together as we did. Don't do, don't do that, okay? But this is what they did. This is what they did in the Bible. They would lay together and eat together facing one another or, or facing each other side by side. It was was kind of strange. So imagine this intimate setting that Jesus has with his disciples, with tax collectors, and the text actually says tax collectors and sinners. Now throughout the New Testament, tax collectors and sinners are often lumped together in sort of the, the same group. Of course, biblically speaking, Paul says That we're all sinners. He says, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." So, what does he mean when when they when we label someone that way? When we say you are a sinner, well, a sinner specifically in the eyes of a Jew, a Jewish person would label someone a sinner because they would have been living an outright, open, immoral lifestyle. They they would have been prostitutes. They would have been human traffickers. They would have been a thief, or something like that. So if you wonder why tax collectors, though, are, are tied into the mix of sinners, it almost doesn't make sense. Why are tax collectors and sinners in the same bracket? My question is, have you ever done your taxes? You can say that makes sense to me why they would do that. But he's not really saying, well, we hate paying taxes, that's what we're going to lump them in with sinners. There's, there's, there's more to it than that. Because the tax, tax, taxation in the ancient world is really nothing like we have now. Now we pay our taxes based on local, st- state, and federal taxes. In our country, a tax collector is a government employee who has, who's, has a paid annual salver, uh, salary every year. They, they, they're not so much tax collectors as they're really tax receivers for the majority of the people. And their, their way that they would collect, that they suspect fraud, This when they would go out and, and get you or get something from you. So that's a tax receiver or tax collector, an IRS agent in our culture today. But in the ancient world, tax collectors were way worse. They didn't have to expect fraud from you to collect from you. A tax collector then was really a contract job where they would work for Rome to get whatever Rome wanted. And not only that, but they would tell you, because there's no accountability, because they were like bounty hunters. They would tell you what the tax was, knowing that it was more than what they're saying, because they would pocket, they would give what Rome wanted, and they would pocket the rest. So all of these were criminals. All of these were greedy, greedy people. And not only that, and to make matters worse, it wasn't just that, They were being cheated out of their taxes. But being a tax collector under Rome meant this was something that you signed up for by choice to coincide and work underneath an oppressive Roman government. This means that you would be raising money for occupying Roman force that would have literally raped, murdered and slaughtered men, women, and children by the thousands. This would have happened to thousands of Jews. So this isn't this subtle, okay, we can forgive all Levi, we can forgive all Matthew for taxing us a, a few dollars every year, a little bit more than what he should. No, it's way deeper than that. Matthew, a Jew, would have sold out his own people for greed. Matthew being becoming a tax collector under Rome meant that he is getting filthy rich off the backs and the lives of his very own people. So this party isn't like, hey, Matthew, remember that time that you cheated, on me, on, cheated me on my taxes by a few bucks? You really got me on that one. I forgive you. It's, it's more than that. This is way more scandalous. The disciples are there. Can you imagine the conversations that they had with Jesus on the way to this party? Jesus, you know that this is a terrorist that you've invited into our mix. You know that his, all of his friends are the worst, most despicable people in the world. That's how scandalous Jesus was with grace. You think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus and Matthew are likely the most popular or well-known tax collectors in the Bible. And what do we know about Zacchaeus? Well, we know that he was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And what happens? Jesus sees him and says, I'm coming to your house today. We know that. Okay, that's that's what we know. But we think of him like, ah, like he's such a cute little... Character in the Bible. It's this little short guy he had to climb up a tree just to see Jesus. And that's what we know. He was a despicable human being. This is a man who sold out his own people just to make money. That's how that's how he was. And it wasn't so much that he climbed a tree just because he was short. It was, I think he wanted to be inconspicuous. I don't think he had the guts. To go in front of Jesus and actually face him. What does Jesus do? He he shows up to Zacchaeus. Now let me show you the grace of Jesus Christ in Luke 19. Luke 19 verse 5. What does Jesus say to this man? He says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house. So he hurried and came down and what does Zacchaeus do? Received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The crowd can't believe it. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have defraud, And if, if I have defrauded one of you, and anyone of anything, I restored it four, uh, fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is this man who sold out his own people, and Jesus and him have a joyful interaction with each other, and Jesus tells the crowds who doubt, today salvation has come to this house. The crowds couldn't believe it, and so clearly Jesus is doing something here that would have been wildly unpopular. And so if this is the difficulty for the common people, that Jesus would do, extend this level of grace. If Jesus is willing to do that, imagine what the response would be from the Pharisees. Imagine their response in Mark chapter 2 when they see Jesus reclining at a table with these scumbags. Imagine what they would say when well, they begin to doubt. It. Because you think about what this does to their entire religious system. The Pharisees literally meant that they were separated ones. They were the rigid lawmakers. They would want everyone to obtain their level of righteousness. They separated themselves from everything they thought was ungodly, and they thought everyone except them was separated from the love of God. And their view of God was one that says, as long as I obey God, God is pleased with me. In other words, they would hide behind their religious front. So the fact that everything is out on the open... That he's out with people who are vigilant, open sinners, threatened everything that they stood for. And I'm certain that Jesus would have greatly interrupted their religious framework. So Jesus can command a lame person to walk, and he does. And those Pharisees would have seen that. Jesus can look at a leper and heal him. The Pharisees would have seen that. They saw what would have happened in the end of chapter 1, where Jesus tells the lame man to walk, and he also says, I can also forgive sin. And so they begin to maybe wonder, is this really the Christ? Is this man really the Son of God? Is he really the Messiah? Because they're saying, maybe he can forgive sin, because he can do all of these things. But then it comes to this crescendo, where they see Jesus in front of tax collectors and sinners and they say well there's no way that he's god because god would never do that god would never love people or interact with people like that and you see even in their and you see even in their judgment of jesus shows you and i just how they understand and just how they receive love They believe that God's love is given to us based on how well we perform. And thankfully, the opposite is true. Which is what Jesus shows us in the very next verse. Mark 2, verse 17. They ask the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick he says i came not to call the righteous but sinners jesus's answer is both simple and profound jesus was the physician of the soul and makes and it makes sense for him to be with those who are sick with sin and the good news is this is comforting if you can consider yourself a sinner because jesus is the physician who can heal us however Jesus also uses his, these statements in verse 17 as a slight of form of sarcasm for the Pharisees. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so what's the problem with the Pharisees? They didn't see their need for Christ. They relied on their own righteousness to save them. They believed that they could earn God's favor on their own. We think about it even with John the baptizer. When John the baptizer came and prepared the way for Christ, he invited everyone to repent and believe the gospel. And the, the incredible thing was that God, that John's message appealed to those who had been more labeled as sinners. But for the Pharisees, they hated John's message. They hated John's message just like they hated Jesus' message. This is why in Matthew 21, Jesus warns the Pharisees. He says in Matthew 21 verse 31, truly I say to you, the tax collector and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of the righteous righteousness, or righteousness yeah, there it is, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. When we look at the Pharisees, the problem with the Pharisees is they believe that their self-righteousness is what saved them. And because of that, that's how they receive love. And that is why the Pharisees are often so harsh and so judgmental. Because if that's how they receive love, that's also how they Give love. Now what's interesting is when I read the Pharisees, I can get angry. I can get really ticked off because I hate legalism. I grew up in a legalistic background. I became a believer. I became part of a legalistic church. You know, don't watch these kind of movies. Don't listen to this kind of music. If you play this song backwards, it's satanic. Don't celebrate Halloween. You know, It's all these things. You've got to dress this way. You've got to act this way. And so when I see Jesus zing the Pharisees, I love it. I'm like, that's right, get them, right? Play that rock and roll music in their face. You know, like I'm just like, yeah. And we can all do that. We all kind of get riled up and say, okay, this is exactly what they needed to hear. Yes. And we often don't think that we're pharisaical. Like I hear people say it all the time. I used to be legalistic. I'm not legalistic anymore. Every time I hear someone say they used to be legalistic, they probably still are. Because any time that we cling to our own righteousness and think that our own righteous efforts or our own performance is what makes God love us, that is what makes us, by definition, a legalist. That's what makes us a Pharisee. And so I tell people all the time, I'm a recovering legalist. I'm trying to fight this war of dying to myself, which means part of dying to myself means I'm dying to the identity of thinking that I can perform enough for God to love me even though God's love is freely given in spite of me. And we look at it all the time, we think, okay, well, the Pharisees are these bad people and I'm this good person. No, no, we all have Pharisaical threads within us. But the reality is this there's a tremendous sadness to viewing God this way. That He could only accept you if you performed well. And if your sins were more obvious, if your sins were out in the open, if you were to confess your sins, there is no way that God could love you. And that's the lie that we believe. That's the Pharisaical lie that we believe when the exact opposite is true. The way of the Pharisee or the legalist is that if they wear masks so well that they would, and what ends up happening is they end up missing the gospel altogether. They wear masks so well that they're never really known, and they're never really loved. And Integrity, we say it like this. We say, liars don't have real friends. And what we mean by that statement is people who wear the mask and wear the lie, no one gets to know the real you. And so what ends up happening is they fall in love with the mask that you wear and not who you really are. So you never really have a real friend. You never really have someone love you. They just wear, they just fall in love with the veneer. They just fall in love with what, what you're hiding but so liars don't have real friends. That's the way of the Pharisee. The, the Pharisee doesn't know how to receive love, and they don't know how to give love, because what they do is hide. So if you want to know why today people hide less, more and more, and want to be known less and less, it's not just there's more introverts in the world than there are extroverts. It's not even a rise in technology where people want to bowl less and stay at home because it's just more inconvenient or, or it's just more expensive to go out. I think we run because we don't want people to know us. We run because we believe that if people really knew us, there's no way they could love us for who we really are. So what's secure? What Jesus says, Matthew. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Integrity Church, what's what's making you hide today? Do you believe that you are too great of a sinner? Or are you too great of a Pharisee? Do you believe you're too great of a sinner? Let me show you What Jesus does with the sinner. Mark chapter 2, we see it again. Luke chapter 9, we see it with Zacchaeus, or Luke chapter 19, rather. What does Jesus do with the sinner? When he sees them, does he condemn them? Does he tell them that their sin is too great? Does he require them to, to follow a set of rules or moral code, and then he will sit with them? No. What does he do with Zacchaeus? There's a joyful interaction when he sees him, when he sees Matthew, what does he say? Follow me. What does Matthew do? He invites Jesus to come to his home, to be around his friends, that his friends could also experience the joy of being in the presence of Christ. And it doesn't mean that Jesus wants to keep them in their sins. Remember that Jesus is the physician who wants to heal the sinner. We even read it just earlier, Romans 5, verse 6. It says, while we're still weak at the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. And so if you resonate With the sinner in the story, let me just tell you, there's grace for you. The, the, The gospel says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all your darkness, all of your brokenness. He will can set you free from your sins. And not only that, no matter how deep and dark the sin is, he invites you. To sit at his table. And what a joyful thing that is. That Jesus Christ would save sinners like you and me. So if you're a sinner this morning, if you resonate with the sinners this morning, can I just tell you there's grace in the gospel? There's grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. So how about if you resonate with the Pharisee? And if you're one who says, I don't resonate with the Pharisee. Yes, you do. It's difficult for the Pharisee to see grace because their entire system of grace rests upon not the finished work of Christ but their own effort. And so would you be able to see that you are sick and in need of a physician? Maybe you find your tendency to compare yourself to everyone else and you see someone on the news and say well I'm not as bad as that person or someone even in your small group or someone in in the church and you say well I'm not as bad as that person can I just remind you that the ground is equal at the foot of the cross that there's no there's no there's no one greater in this story it's not that the it's not that the Pharisees are more righteous or more holy in fact I would say that the Pharisees' view keeps them further from the gospel because they're relying on themselves, whereas the sinner is at least open and and willing to hear what Jesus has to say. And so this morning, my challenge for you, if you are resonating with the Pharisee, can you not hide anymore behind your performance-based religious system that you set up for your life? Can you not hide even behind the Bible anymore? Instead of quoting a Bible verse, why not share what's really happening in your life? Why not share the brokenness? in your heart, and the need to be in the light and no longer in the darkness. Because in the light, there's freedom. You can be rescued, and you can be redeemed. And if you're the Pharisee, will you also allow others to see behind the mask? And the reason being so that you would actually know what it means to be loved in spite of your sin. That's the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ invites us to live in. So what would it look like, integrity? What would it look like to be a community where people stopped hiding? What would be messy? There'd be a lot to deal with. There would be a lot of forgiveness needed. We would have to fight the tendency not to judge others, to love them in spite of their sin like Christ did for us. Phil Yancey says it well when he says Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. So we can agree that it's messy. But I think in the messiness, there's also a tremendous amount of freedom because it would be a community that's built on grace. And I think that is where the gospel is profoundly displayed. And this is Jesus and his disciples. This is Jesus and his disciples who had men who were former former fishermen, former tax collectors in the same room, in the same community together. And this is where we can get the idea of a poor man and a rich man and an old man and a young man and a white man and a black man all together, worshiping Christ together. And it all comes from a community where people stop hiding and start believing that Christ's love covers all sin. That's where it happens. If you want to break any kind of cultural walls, walls of ethnicity, walls of age differences, socioeconomic backgrounds, how can that be broken when people stop hiding and start believing That Christ's love covers all sin. And so Integrity Church, wherever you are in this, maybe you resonate with the sinner, maybe you resonate with the Pharisee. Either way, my hope is that you will see grace. That God's word would be where we find our identity, we realize that we are sick, and that we are in need of a physician, we are sinners, in need of a Savior, where the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. My plea for you, Integrity Church, is that we would be a community that displays God's grace this way. God, help us. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so humbled by your grace and your love. God, I pray that you would do a work in us and cause us through the work of your Holy Spirit to be a community of grace. God, would you...